We're going to have a look at the, the woman taken in adultery here in John 8. And I'll just reread uh, John 8 from 1 to 11. <clears throat> Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he again went into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. And having placed her before him, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, so they might have some reason to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they continued asking him, he stood up and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground. And they, when they heard it, went out one by one, beginning from the eldest to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman, with her still standing in the middle. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From this time forward, sin no more. Now let's just see what's happening here. Jesus is teaching the people. So they're all uh, sitting around him. And he's sitting down and surrounded by, by them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees kind of push their way through the circle and they surround Jesus as a sort of uh, a circle within a circle with this uh, woman who I assume was, was naked and was crying and was scared because it seems that the Jews did have the right to execute people by stoning. It's uh, a slightly controversial question but it, it, it seems that the Romans did give them that, that power to, to do that if their religious court decided that somebody was guilty of, of being stoned and so what are we to, uh, to learn from this well this woman it seems to me represents each of us and I say that really uh, on the basis of what we have there in verse 10 where Jesus says, Woman, where are those your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Where are your accusers? Has nobody condemned you? Okay, I will not. Now, there's a lot of connections between the Gospel of John and the letter to the Romans. And there's a, a book around by the late uh, Jeff and Ray Walker that was uh, serialized in the, the Bible Student magazine many years ago and it's called Romans in the Light of John's Gospel and this is a fairly major book it's just full of these connections now, I'm not going to go into that unduly but you may like to just turn over to Romans 8 and there I think we have uh, a very clear allusion back to this incident Romans 8 uh, from verse 30, 33 Romans 1-8 is full of legal language and Paul says here, who shall lay anything to the, charge, to the charge of God's elect? And that's lay anything, is legal language. Who shall take out any legal case? Who shall lay any legal charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who declares as right. Who or where is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And so what he's doing here is saying that, look, uh, this is a very strange courtroom, that the counsel for the defense, the advocate, 
is in fact Jesus, the judge is Jesus, the judge is on our side, and the witness box against us, the witness of the prosecution is empty, and the the procurator, the the one who could condemn, the one bringing the charges, is uh, the, the, the prosecutor, is not there. Suddenly, nobody there. And God says, you are justified. You are declared right. And it all seems sort of wrong, in a sense, because we are sinners with a whole mass of cases against us, and we should be condemned. And yet, suddenly, because we are in Christ by status, I think that's what Paul is saying here in Romans, there is no one to condemn us. We are free. And we are declared right. We're not only just let off. We are declared right. And there is nobody to condemn us. There is no accuser. There are no accusers anymore. And there's no human person who's condemning us. It is God instead who is declaring us right. Now, this is exactly the situation that you've got here with this woman. That her accusers, one by one, disappear because they themselves are sinners which of course has been a theme of Paul also in in Romans at the beginning that we as sinners cannot condemn other sinners no one has condemned you, Jesus says and so she's, as it were, let free now you notice incidentally there in verse 11 that Jesus doesn't say, look here, do you repent? do you realize what you did was really wrong? And, this, and you know, she doesn't sort of say, yes, Lord, I do. And he says, hey, okay, so uh, I'll forgive you and just, uh, just keep your nose clean in future, my, my dear. It's not like that at all. Now, of course, you could argue that, well, yeah, Jesus knew she was repentant, so he didn't ask her. Uh, he didn't make her an issue of this. But it seems to me that what he's doing here is forgiving her just simply so, without any expression of repentance and on the basis of her receipt of that forgiveness he says now look obviously you can't be passive to that sin no more and this is really I think what what you get in the the prophecies of the new covenant when Israel are basically told I forgive you you are forgiven so therefore repent it's not repent and therefore I'll forgive you but it's I forgive you therefore repent Now this is not to say that repentance is unimportant, not at all. But the point I think is that God forgives us, in a sense, from the foundation of the world. And what it is for for us to do is to accept that forgiveness, and therefore on that basis to be so touched by that that we do not sin. We don't continue in, in sin. Now, this, of course, becomes very practical for each of us, because we're each of us suffering, in a sense, from the whole problem of people who sin against us. And it's easy to demand, therefore, their repentance and say, if you repent, I'll forgive you. But I think when Jesus talks about that in Matthew 18, he he says, or Peter says, so should I do this seven times a day? Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. If all those times every day your brother turns to you and says, I repent, well then forgive him. But I think what Jesus is really saying is, even if his repentance is so obviously not sincere, don't even go there about trying to figure out the sincerity of his repentance. Just forgive him. 
Now you could say, no, I'm only going to forgive people who repent. Well, in a sense that's okay, in one sense, but where it goes somewhat badly wrong, or where it will go wrong, is when you and I stand before the Day of Judgment with a whole load of sin that maybe we didn't even realize we committed, and we are going to be hoping, begging for forgiveness without, as it were, having repented in our lives. So as we forgive, so we will be forgiven. I don't think that simply means that if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. I mean, it, it, it may mean that. But I think it, it more is saying the kind of forgiveness that you give, the passive forgiveness that you run in the course of your life, will be the basis upon which you are forgiven. So then, if we are not going to forgive unless somebody repents, well, that is what we are asking God to do to us. I'm seeing that you know, David says in Psalm 19, forgive me for secret sins or for, for sins of ignorance. If we are asking really that, you know, forgive me please and accept me totally, both for those sins that I, I realize and I confess, and for those that I do and I probably don't even realize, then we are asking really for God to forgive us without our specific recognition of wrongdoing. And so we should do to, to others. So then, this woman was brought to that, was brought to Jesus, and she was naked, probably, and crying, and all that, uh, and uh, scared she was going to be stoned to death. And Jesus writes on the ground, and this is the old question, isn't it? Well, what did he write? In verse six, he stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Now, I have a couple of suggestions here, and of course I don't know, and I, I, nobody really knows um, what it was. Well, one of them is that you may as well write on the ground was an Aramaic idiom for I'm not interested, or I'm just killing time here doing something pointless until you go away. The idea being that what you wrote on stone or parchments was permanent, but there was no point in writing like say writing a book on the ground or writing a poem on the ground because what you wrote would very soon be erased and it was not permanent so that's one possibility because the other possibility is that he lists all their sins and that connects with some Old Testament uh, passages which talk about the sins of Israel being being written in, in, in the dust that, uh, that that could be the case or it could simply be, as I say, that Jesus is saying, look, I'm not interested. You come to me with these allegations against this woman. I am not interested. Okay, I'll doodle on the ground. It could also be, uh, as a almost unique insight or a very interesting window, let's say, into the Lord's humanity, that there he was with a naked woman. Well, it's kind of uh, embarrassing and awkward for a male to be with a naked woman uh, so yeah, she was probably young why I say that is that the, the punishment for adultery was death but the punishment for adultery when it was committed by an engaged girl was stoning and so presumably she was young she was engaged. I mean women got married really young in, the, in those days so there he is with this naked young woman uh, and just like any other bloke it's kind of awkward and embarrassing 
and she's standing there, it's both emphasised a couple of times, and he stoops down, and obviously doesn't look at her, and he's like doodling uh, on on the ground, and certainly what he starts off writing could not have been, I think, a condemnation of of their sins, of their personal sins, because they keep on and on asking him. It's only when he writes the second time that, they, and when he says he's it's without sin, let him cast the first stone that they, they walk away. Now, when he says, so, you know, what, what do we take from that? Um, the only person who is without sin is Jesus. And when he says, let him that is without sin, who is he that is without sin? Well, there's one person, and that's Jesus. And Jesus surely, as that one person who was the man without sin, was surely aware of that. And so the Lord Jesus says that, you know, basically I'm not interested. I am the only one around here who can condemn. I am not interested. And I think we see there a great pattern for us in not listening to gossip. I am not interested. I cannot judge. I'm not the judge of whatever the case is that you're telling me about. I'm not interested. I will write on the ground. As I say, this Adamaic idiom for I'm not interested. I'm just, okay, you want to talk to me about all that stuff, I'll just kill time doing something pointless until you go away, I'll stop talking about it. I'm not interested. And this, I think, should be our attitude. I don't want to know. And yet, as I say, what we see here, Jesus also, I think another reason why he stoops down and writes on the ground, was out of sheer male awkwardness. And, you know, you see a wonderful insight, I think, there into the total humanity of the Lord Jesus so he says he that's without sin let him cast the first stone now Deuteronomy 17 verse 7 that could only be done by the actual witnesses the person who had actually witnessed the crime was the one who should throw the first stone so he says okay those of you who witnessed it with your own eyes throw the stone I think the implication could be from that that this group of scribes and, and, and Pharisees uh, you know, we tend to think there was a huge crowd of them, but it might have only been four, four people, four men. It could have just been a very small group. I think the implication is that they had actually slept with her. They might have gang-raped her, or they may have paid her for her services, and then afterwards they thought, hang, uh, let's just liquidate this woman. Let's kill her. Let's, let's get her out. She might open her mouth and talk. And so that's why they, they come early in the morning. This is early in the morning. This is the morning after the night before. And so they bring her, and it seems to me that they had, they were the ones who slept with her. And so they, Jesus says, okay, you're the witnesses, you're the guys who saw this, actually, so then you, you throw the stone. Now you notice that Jesus doesn't say that sin doesn't matter or that it doesn't really bring death. He actually invites them to throw the first stone. He says, okay, go ahead. Just go ahead, guys. Uh, You as the witnesses, uh, but let him that is without sin do that. So what he's saying is, even if you know about another person's sin, even if you've actually witnessed it with your own eyes, you cannot condemn them because you are a sinner. And only, in the end, only he that is without sin, and that's Jesus, can condemn. 
because all sin leads to death, even if I'm wrong in my supposition that it was them who slept with her, even if I'm totally wrong. Okay, they were still sinners, and just, as it were, uh, one sin brings death. So, yeah, we all sin, we sin like water, unfortunately. And so, therefore, we are all condemned to die. So, who are we, therefore, to condemn? Now, this is absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial that if we are sinners, we cannot condemn others. And Jesus does not want to hear. He's not interested, and neither should we be, in gossip uh, about others' sin. Because gossip is nearly always about others' sin, isn't it? What's uh, interesting is that out of that, uh, that group of highly religious men, it would seem, the implication is, that they had all, every one of them, committed sexual sin. Because he's saying, if you didn't do this, that's different, but he, let him that is without sin throw that first stone. And that's incredible. That this group of scribes and Pharisees, however many they were, you know, it could have been three or four men, or it could have been a whole, whole bunch of 40 people, they were all guilty. And why do the older men walk out first? I think it's just because the older you are, the more sin you committed. And they were the more convicted, and they, they walked out. So why is it then that people have this terrible ability to condemn another for the very sin which they themselves commit? Well, psychologically, I think it may work like this, that we transfer our sin onto another. So let's say they had committed adultery. Okay, so then they transferred that sin onto this other woman. And they said, with great enthusiasm, yes, 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 she must be killed. And they do that, people do that, because they realise that their sin does deserve judgment. It does deserve punishment, it does deserve death. And therefore they are very eager to see this being done to others who have committed, in fact, the very same sin that they did. Now, how then do we avoid us doing that? Us transferring our sin and our guilt onto another person as a way of dealing with our guilt? Because, you know, believe me, this happens especially with religious people very, very often, that things just work out. But the very, very thing that somebody is guilty for they very strongly judge other people for and condemn other people for the very same thing. And we think, wow, how could that happen? Yeah, it does happen because we transfer our sin onto others, our guilt onto others, and we want to see them judged for it. Now, how do we not do that? I think by reflecting upon the fact that the Lord Jesus was in every sense a guilt offering that we laid our hands, as it were, on his head and confessed our sins over him and our sins are dealt with, our guilt is dealt with. It goes somewhere. It doesn't need to go on to another person. It goes on to him. And it has gone on to him. And he died for our sin. In one sense he was like the, the scapegoat that, that, that died and yet he was also like the goat that was, was allowed to, to run free into the wilderness carrying, as it were, that sin far, far away. So our guilt 
for the sins we've done, that we realize we've done, and for those that we, we only subconsciously recognize we've done, that has all been taken away, and the goat has run away. And we are free. We are free. And that guilt has been taken away. So you don't need to deal with it by transferring it onto another. So then he writes a second time on the ground, having said, he that's without sin led him first cast a stone and he writes a second time and then they're convicted by their conscience and they go out now this is where it would make sense if what he wrote on the ground the second time was in fact their actual sins and notice incidentally bearing in mind this Aramaic idiom of that writing in the ground is a, a temporary thing as opposed to writing on a stone or on a parchment Jeremiah 17 verse 1 we're told that the sin of Judah was engraved with the point of a diamond on stone and yet Jesus by writing their sins in the dust which could just blow away in, in moments I think we're showing that look guys I know you've done all this but I actually want to forgive you I want to see it all scribbled now I said that there was the crowd sitting around Jesus and these scribes and Pharisees had pushed in with this poor woman and were standing uh, in front of the crowd and in front of Jesus as a kind of a second circle around him and in Semitic culture shame was a, a huge thing you remember when Judah sins with, the, uh, with that well, woman and he, uh, he, he thinks that he slept with a prostitute and he, he's all worried about shame okay well you know, don't worry about it. Uh, he says, you know, we we try to pay with the with the the goat that I promised her, but you know, let's for shame, like let's get out of here. And I, I think that that's why they walked out one by one, because they didn't just they couldn't bear to think that their sin was now written in the dust in front of all that crowd. And so I think that's why they all walked out, they were convicted by their conscience though when Jesus says, you know, let him that's without sin cast the first stone incidentally all those people had a conscience and yet this was the group who subsequently rejected, condemned killed God's son but even they had a conscience and I think that that means that everyone has a conscience and where that should be borne in mind is in our preaching and in, in our disappointment may be that our, our message seems to always land on totally unresponsive ears but you know that's not the case at all all those people, let, let's say you've distributed flyers on, on, on a street corner people going by, pick it up and, uh, you know, chuck it in the, in the waste paper basket and you think, ah, you know these people are totally not interested I think that that's not quite the case you could be giving out tracts about anything but if you give it a, our tract about Jesus, it, it does hit their conscience. And they might throw it in the waste paper basket a slightly different way than what they may throw a, a usual advertising thing in, in the garbage. Everybody has a conscience, even the worst of humanity. Even these guys had a conscience. And you can, you can touch it. God touches it as soon as the light of Jesus is, is mentioned and so then they, are, they go away and Jesus is left with a crowd watching him 
with this very repentant naked sinner. And Jesus has stooped down, verse 8, and that is the, the language of servanthood. And she is standing. Verse 9, the woman was left standing in the midst, that is, of the, of the crowd. And the, when he lifts himself up, uh, he, he uh, verse 10, Jesus lifted himself up. This is a, taken out of the Septuagint for the Lord arising, lifting himself up in judgment. Psalm 7, verse 6, 94, verse 2. Psalm 7, 6, 94, 2 uh, it's got a few others so it seems to me that we have here some sort of prefigurement of the cross but there was Jesus as it were vertical with this naked condemned sinner who's been forgiven next to him and a watching crowd is exactly the picture of the cross now, verse 9, Jesus was left alone. And he wasn't totally alone, there was a crowd watching him. And he alludes to that, or connects with that, later on in this same chapter. In John 8, 28 and 29, he says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you, shall you know that I am he, that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. He that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. This is the same, same words as there in verse 9. Jesus was left alone. And then he says later on, look, God is with me. God has not left me alone. And his whole theme here in John 8 is that God is with him in the judgments that he makes. In verse 16, for example. So then, the, the time when Jesus was left alone with a naked, repentant sinner before a crowd and he was left alone but God was with him this is the cross John 16 verse 32 the hour comes and is now come that you shall be scattered every one to his own just as uh, those scribes and Pharisees scattered from him and shall leave me alone yet I am not alone because the Father is with me so then I think in this incident here I think this is why we have it here. And incidentally, some people say that these verses 1 to 11 of John 8 aren't, uh, aren't in the original and not inspired. But I think the connections with the rest of the chapter and, and with other, the other passages in John seem to, to me to, uh, to be quite seamless uh, and to sort of fit very nicely. So then, he there represented God. Not that he was God, of course, but he, he manifested God in that assurance that you who I could condemn, you who are condemned, I do not condemn. You are free. And this, you know, the stooping down, the serpent-like Jesus in front of the standing woman, and then him standing vertical um, and, and pronouncing judgment in the terms of you are not condemned, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. I mean, this is in essence what happened on the cross. And here we are remembering his death. And this is so clearly the message for us. If we will perceive that that woman 
is us. And so, of course, the, the power of that forgiveness, which we have already been granted, is that we therefore go and sin no more.